There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. And if you enjoy our show, then be sure to check out some of the others on the network, like Royfield Brown's 10 American Presidents, a show about landmark presidencies. Each show features an expert narrator giving their take on the life of one of the presidents, as well as a dramatic score and audio clips to create a whole listening experience. For more information on 10 American Presidents, go to 10USP.com. And for more information on the shows on the network, go to agorapodcastnetwork.com. And if you want more of The Cannonball, check out our blog at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. You'll see our occasional scribblings on canonical things, as well as the order in which we're tackling the canon. You can also find us on Twitter at CannonballPod, or on Facebook if you look for our group. Rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks, and enjoy the show. We have a new sponsor. It's Online Great Books, a reading program that explores classic texts and that puts you in the habit of reading them. If you're interested in developing a habit of reading classic books by authors like Homer, Nietzsche, Cicero, Spinoza, and more, go to OnlineGreatBooks.com. OnlineGreatBooks.com is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books, weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools, and a dedicated community of fellow readers help keep you on track and on schedule with your reading. The OnlineGreatBooks.com check-in and reading goals system is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month, OnlineGreatBooks.com ships a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. We begin with Homer and progress through works by Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare, through the moderns. Each month, you'll meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. Go to onlinebooks.com to join the VIP list and receive an executive book summary, a digest of the reading list, and more. If you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, go to onlinegreatbooks.com and enter the promo code CAN, that's C-A-N, to get 25% off your first three months. Hi, this is Claude from The Cannonball. Today we have something a little different. Etymologically, errancy, particularly in the term night errancy, is derived from the same root as error. Now, error in contemporary terms means the wrong way, but applied to errancy, it comes closer in meaning to a diversion or digression from the expected root. Your knight errant was one who typically had no clearly expected route, so he went wherever the road or source took him. Part of the adventure was what happened whenever you went off course or had no course and just happened upon an unintended endeavor. And accidentals are the nature of life. And of Don Quixote, a novel both planned and improvised. So consider this episode something of an attempt at errancy, and if I'm in error... Rest assured, after a few mishaps in the woods, some run-ins with the Holy Order, and a loss of a couple of teeth, I'm sure I'll be back where we started either on foot, by horse, or teleported while caged by an enchanter. Now, Daniel and I are diligently working our way through Don Quixote. If you haven't noticed, the book is a little... big. And we're only just getting started with background information. This is going to be a big one. Probably a couple of big ones. 
but we didn't want to go on hiatus just to make sure we get through the book. I invited on a writer friend of mine, Chris Ludovici, to give some insights from his reading of Don Quixote and on literature in general. I've actually been wanting to get Chris on for a while. In the first place, he has a book out, The Miners, from the Unsolicited Press. It's a great read, and I'm always happy to tell more people to check it out. There's a link to buy it in the show notes, and I'll be writing about it on the blog as well. Aside from that, Chris has a really fascinating relationship with literature and the claims of high art. I don't want to give too much away, mostly because our conversation is really less about Cervantes and more about growing up in and around an intellectual milieu that makes you extremely skeptical of that milieu. Chris is the furthest thing from an anti-intellectual. In fact, I'd say he's ready, willing, and able to apply his intellect to all number of manner and endeavors. But he's suspicious of some of the expectations for the effects of engaging in culture with a capital C. The gist of our conversation is that being cultured isn't necessarily the same thing as being functional. And Chris goes into that in detail. So enjoy this side path. We'll be back to the regular road soon. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. Uh, usually I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Doty, but today we've got a little something special. Uh, my friend uh, and the writer, Chris Ludovicki, is joining us to talk about Don Quixote and also the writing process and his own recent novel, The Miners. Uh, Chris, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really good. Thanks. And uh, just real quick, it's, it's actually Ludovici. Ludovici, no, yeah, because okay. it's ICI. People get confused, <laughs> but yeah, it's Ludovici. Yeah, you're a great, good friend of mine, and uh, <laughs> no, you are name, a friend of mine. But... Name pronunciation aside. Sure. Okay, yeah, 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 gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so I I wanted to talk to you because you read Don Quixote without my asking you to. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay, it's it's kind of interesting because you have uh, a really sort of fascinating, I guess, relationship with high art and with canonical literature or or with canonical culture or high art culture, whatever you want to call it. And uh, you're a novelist yourself, and you you wrote me, I, I guess, uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago, looking for good translations of Don Quixote, and I recommended the Grossman one. Mm-hmm. And this kind of surprised me because I didn't know if this would be up your alley. And um, that that's sort of my first question for you is, why were you reading Don Quixote? What, what was it that you were sort of expecting, or, or what was it that you wanted to get out of it? Um, you know, I don't think I had a real expectation or idea other than I was going to read this book. Like, um, I just wanted to read it, you know, like when I was a kid. Okay. So, you know, Bone, the comic, the Jeff Smith yeah. comic. So, you know how yeah, yeah, yeah. Phone Bone is obsessed with Moby Dick, right? Like that's a, right. that's a thing of his character and he's always going on and on about it. Um, and, and one of the things about Moby Dick is, is that it's, it's a hard read, right? That was always what people said about it is it's a hard read. So I decided, I don't know, eight or nine years ago that I was going to read it, and I found it to be a really easy read. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a really readable book. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of great information. It's not like, like, I don't really dig on James Joyce that much because I spend mm-hmm. half the sentence trying to figure out what the sentence is saying. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not at, we, it, we got into that sort of Facebook discussion a long time ago, poetry and I, we don't always mix. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I found, um, I found Melville to be, I mean, he's lyrical, but he's, he's also just a very good technical writer. Like, it's yeah. very easy to understand what everybody's doing, why they're doing it. And, um, you know, the pleasure in reading it is not necessarily the words, although the words are lovely, but it's also about what the people are thinking and doing. Anyway, so I, I read it and I, I just really enjoyed it. And so, like, I, I, Every once in a while, you're just like, I'm going to read, you know, one of the books, the capital T, the capital B books. And mm-hmm. you would mention Don Quixote and I've never read Don Quixote. And it's like, well, I'll read Don Quixote. It's I mean, I've, <laughs> I've read, you know, I've, I've read Moby Dick. I've read uh, the Brothers Karamazov. I've read, um, I don't know, like you go down. I've read, 
you know, Sense and Sensibility. I've read like those books that you're supposed to read. I just I try to read them. And, and so this was the time for that one. Well, this this is the thing that, you know, I, I really wanted to talk to you about because I I always really respect your viewpoints on a lot of things. I don't always agree with you, mm-hmm. but I respect where you're coming from. You're not thoughtless. That, like, thank when you. you ha- <laughs> okay, that sounds like damning with faint praise, but <clears throat> even the things that I'm like, okay, I can't get on board with this with you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you still come at them from a place of having really considered, thought through it, mm-hmm. worked through it, and you always fall back on, hey, look, I realize this isn't for everyone, yeah. but this is how I'm getting at this. Mm-hmm. This is how I think about this. This is what I really find aesthetically affecting about this, mm-hmm. and I will stand by this. Okay, to, to give the audience uh, or, or our listeners a, a little bit of viewpoint, you have the most impassioned take on two things that I really cannot get into, but I really respect your take. Um, the Star Wars prequels and the Matrix sequels. That's true. I, I, I have don't, feelings about both of them. I, but, okay, it's not just feelings, it's thoughts. Right, yes, it's, yes. You, you're, you're, you're impassioned about those things, but it's not coming from <clears throat> a kind of reflective sort of gag reflex fanboy sort of way. Right. It's you've worked on these things and the conceptual viewpoint that you've developed Mm -hmm. is, is something that you argue not. Okay. I say argue in terms of presenting evidence and analyzing the evidence, not argue as in. Yeah. Like you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. And, and for me, I like thinking about things, which I don't think everybody does. You know, like one of the things that I find really interesting about Facebook as like a a social tool is that like if you get into a conversation with somebody on a thread, it can go like 20 or 30 or sometimes 40 back and forth. And some people are really like put off by that. They're really they think they they just automatically say, no, this is a this is a fight, like, as opposed to a sort of a, an argument, right? Like, a, like this is this is two people who are angry at each other, or one person's being a jerk, and it's like, well, no, what's interesting about an idea is often, or, or what makes an idea interesting is, is not the first couple levels, it's like getting down to the bone of a thing. Right. And I think, you know, back to the sort of Star Wars and Matrix movies, and I, I think they're both flawed, um, Matrix less so, because I really do like them, but like, is that these were movies that had a point of view. They were trying right. to do something, and, and they're, they're both intermittently successful at doing it, but like, it's really interesting to me to, to, to see them both trying to do that. You know, it's interesting to see somebody try to, um, like, okay, we're talking about Don Quixote, right? Which is a great work of, of literature. It's a book, and it does all of the things that books can do really well. Um, you know, it's it sort of, it, it goes deep inside certain things and it has stories within stories within stories. And it's got a lot of wordplay. It's got a lot of puns and a lot of references. And, and those are the types of things that books do really, really well. And like one of the things movies do really well is show you things, right? It's, it's like, it's like I always said, the, the reason that Jurassic Park is a, is a great movie and Jurassic Park is a dumb book, among other things, is, is any idiot can type dinosaur, <laughs> you know, and it's like you, you you can, but if you make a dinosaur the thing, it's like that's what a movie is for. And I do, I love, I love those movies that are trying to talk about things, but are also trying to show me things. You know, like yeah. like spaceships and 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 crazy, you know, breaks in reality because that's that's well, what movies are for. That that's the other thing that that I really sort of respect about you is that you're coming at this from a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. I try to. that it's yeah it's it's kind of a magpie approach, which I think is the best possible approach to to apply that thoughtfulness or to apply that sort of intellectual critique or analysis mm-hmm. to as wide a variety of material as possible, and and that's what I'm I'm sort of saying is that that hits at this project right that. It's not about a, a set of standard works that you're trying to, you know, match the height of or, or mm-hmm. something like that. But it's rather, uh, what is the aesthetic effect? Right. And if it doesn't have an effect, well, then scrap it. And if it does have an effect, no matter where it's coming from, then articulate that. And that that's what I, I, I like about your perspective. Oh, thank you. And I will say that one of the things I really <clears throat> like about reading 
older books, you know, books from the past that I find really interesting is, is that we do, we like the sort of listicle world that we live in now is really obsessed with ranking things and trying to figure out, well, what are the best versions of whatever? And a lot of times those are things that you can't decide in the moment. Yeah. You know, there are things that, that, no, they just have to last, you know, uh, something, what part of what makes something great is that, is that people still care about it in the future. And that's just not something that you can project, but, right. but the sort of weird, interesting tension of something like Don Quixote or again, any, you know, Dickens or, or Dostoevsky or anything is that the books aren't written a lot of times for history. They're written for the present. Right. So they're filled with like this copy of Don Quixote that you recommended the, um, the Edith Grossman one. It, it's got, it's got some, it's got some small footnotes. It's not like footnote heavy. And a lot of what the footnotes are is just to tell you, oh yeah, this was a book that was popular at this time. Or yeah. this was a person who lived in that area. And so like, this is a book that, ex like all, like almost all books, exist in context. You know, like yeah. it's in conversation with what's happening in the world at that time. But sort of what makes it, one of the things that makes that interesting is, is we're not reading it at that time. So what does right. it mean now? Which is again, it's sort of the same thing you're saying, but it's it's trying to relate it specifically to to this book or or any book. You know, does does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, that, that, that makes total sense. It's yeah. okay. There's a, yeah, I'm going to bring up poetry and I know you hate that, but there's a, a contemporary poet, uh, Frank Bedard. Okay. And he, he, he has this, uh, prose poem mm -hmm. called Borges and I about the, the Borges fiction, Borges and I. Mm -hmm. And it, it starts with this line that he repeats, you know, we fill pre-existing forms and when we fill them, we change them and are changed. Right. And, and his whole idea is that like history isn't static. Right. It, it's not absolutely chaotic because it's got these parameters to it. Mm -hmm. And we go back to old forms. We go back to old models, but when we inhabit them in a new context, yeah. we do something different with it. And that's that's, I think that's what you're getting at is that the 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 reading of of the text in the moment you know it's 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 something different than it was back then yeah but it's also within certain kinds of parameters for how we still consider the thing yeah like a thing for me that was that was really <clears throat> a sort of a, a for a, a, what is the word a, a seminal moment in my reading life yeah was reading Pride and Prejudice a little more than ten years ago and talking mm -hmm. to my mom about it now my mom is like a you know, she was a, a, an English major at Swarthmore College. She loves Austin and, and 19th century, uh, 18th, 19th century English literature. So, you know, I was just constantly going to her for context just about the world. And at a certain point, I, I was talking to her and I remember saying to her, oh, I get it. Like, this is a suspense novel. This isn't this is an action novel, right? Because yeah. because these people's lives are on the line. And like when in, in you've got mail, when Meg Ryan breaks up with um, Greg Kinnear without knowing that she's going to end up with Tom Hanks. Spoiler alert. Um, that doesn't... <laughs> that she's not... That's not going to have a real material, like, okay, she's going to be a little sad, but she's not going to lose her home. You know, she's not going to... She's not... She couldn't potentially be destitute. Whereas the decisions that the characters make in Austin have, like, a real profound... Uh, immediate effect on their lives. Oh yeah, you know? I mean it. It is life and death. Like yeah. The, the that's. I, I think you're getting at what a lot of people misread in Austin. Yeah. The we think of romance as soothing, strictly. Yeah, strictly in terms of emotion and perhaps sexuality. Right. And there's a whole economics exactly. And it's like that. That Austin was clear-eyed about. Yeah. These people could. These. This. This would. This would have a real. I mean, it's again. It's not exactly Die Hard, but it's not that far off. Like these people's <laughs> futures. When uh, when when Lizzie Bennett doesn't go off with um, Reverend whatever his name is, I don't remember. Like she's not just making a decision for her happiness. She's affecting everybody else in her family, and really, yeah. she's risking them all, and yeah. like that's a that's a that's a moment of risk. And anyway, I think, you know, like like when we're what I think is really fascinating again is is that stuff that a reader in in Austin's time would take for granted, you know. So yeah. that's not really the book is about the economics of it, as you say. But when we read it now. We're, we get all these different things out of it, but also it's a way to understand the way. It's, yeah. a, it's a way to it's a way to look at all the stuff that those people took for granted about the world that they lived in. Yeah, you know the subtext, all the stuff that they're not talking about, is the stuff that makes it valuable because it's like, oh, this is why this matters so much. 
You know, exactly. this exactly. is why this has weight in a way that like Bridget Jones's diary doesn't. And I've never read Bridget Jones's diary. It was, a, <laughs> it was a cute movie, but you know what I'm saying? It's that same thing. It's like, well, if she doesn't get together with Mr. Darcy or whatever Hugh Grant's character's name is again, she's still going to be a reporter the next day. Right. You know, right. She's still and, gonna, and the stakes are, are, are larger in Austin. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, it's like, no, you like, like you may have major, you may have, you may have actually, put your sister's lives at risk because there's, yeah. you know, it's not like they were going to go get, you know, on public assistance and like, and, and just get food stamps until they could figure out to how to get a job. It's like, no, it's, it's a much harder thing. And yeah, like, and, and that, that gives it, that gives it depth and it gives it weight. And so I think, I think understanding those things can really, it can really materially affect something. I don't know if it does specifically for Don Quixote, which is what I'd like to talk to you about. Well, um, okay. Yeah. We'll get there, but I want to ask you a side question. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. So you brought up your mom and, and Swarthmore and her mm-hmm. as an English major. Uh, okay. So what exactly is your relationship to this sort of high culture? And I'm, I'm, I'm asking you this after having known a little bit about you and known some of your writings, mm-hmm. but you, you've written, I, I think, very touchingly and convincingly mm-hmm. about the – I guess the the gains and the losses of really valuing high culture. I mean, mm-hmm. could you talk about that a little bit? I can try. I mean, I think for me, I was thinking about this the other day. I actually, um, I just got a job at Swarthmore, not like teaching or anything. I'm working on the campus um, as a uh, 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 as a way to just sort of make money so I can keep working on writing when I'm not when I'm not at my job. And um, one of the things I think is really interesting, and I was saying this to my coworker, <clears throat> is that um, you know there there are all these kids that were doing tours of the of the campus this week, students who are going to be there next year. And I was and I was saying, you know, kids work so hard to get to Swarthmore; they work yeah. so so hard, and this for them is the thing that they are that th- that their lives are staked on. You know, where they come to become the people that they're going to be. But it's filled with kids who live in Swarthmore who can't wait to get the fuck out of Swarthmore. Right? Which <laughs> well, is, that's what your novel is. Exactly. About. Exactly. And it's like, it's like there is a, there is, I grew up su- surrounded by people who didn't, who, who felt about where they lived exactly the same way everybody else felt about where they lived, except my people lived in the destination for everybody else. Right. Like, does that make sense? So for me, what that sort of is a metaphor for in, in my mind is is high art or education or a lot of these things are the tools that we use to get where, where we need to go. Mm-hmm. And there are other tools. That doesn't mean that high art isn't a valuable tool or that education isn't a valuable tool. It just means that it's only one of the tools. Right, and right. I think that for me, it took me a long time to accept that, mm-hmm. because the same way you know, the, the same way somebody might grow up in like what they consider to be you know a podunk nowhere town in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by idiots who didn't know anything about anything. You're kind of hitting close to home. <laughs> well, I grew up in again an intellectual mecca filled right. with brilliant people who were idiots and didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> Right, because not- well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's been you know. Okay, this, this is where I'm coming from. Is mm-hmm. that uh, the, like throughout the 20th century? Yeah, there's been this this obsession with education, and yeah. in the let's say 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, education, particularly in the liberal arts and in um, I guess what you could call high culture. Yeah. As a means of transcending where you came from. Right. And, and it's it's weird. I, I was thinking about this. All right, I'm going to go back to poetry and I know mm-hmm. you hate poetry. I don't hate it that much. I just don't understand it. It concerns um, me with poetry like a person who can't carry a tune. Do you know right, what I now, mean? We're, like we're, I just can't sing. 
Yeah, we're going to sit down and talk at one point. Okay, well, and, that's a different uh, podcast. It, it, it's, it's going to be all right. All right. But um, no, there's there's this narrative in 20th century American poetry. Mm-hmm. And I could name you, you know, half a dozen writers right off the bat that that is their narrative. They were yeah. poor kids from the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. or, or wherever they considered the middle of nowhere. They got some kind of scholarship to go and read English. Mm-hmm. And then pursued an MFA and became quote unquote successful right. by transcending their their background through the act of creating poetry, which is the highest of high arts. Right. I'm not saying it's the highest of high arts. No, I I'm understand. There's a cultural perspective. Well, and, and no, and I think there's the something to that. Poetry is really hard. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> some of it is. No, it's not. Okay, well then, <laughs> again, that's for our next conversation. Hey yeah. All right, yeah, that's for the next conversation, but that's what I'm going to throw down right now. Okay. Is that we've been conned into believing that poetry and poetics is much more difficult than it is. Okay. And that's because uh, your high school teachers are awful. Well, I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> I, I think we can agree on that. All right. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. But anyway, you have written a novel and that's what I'm kind of curious about is what do you think that the novel does, right? Like it doesn't quite do what movies do. It doesn't quite do what comic books do. It does this particular thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is it – what exactly is it from your standpoint that you think the novel does? Okay, well, the, the thing that, that I like about the novel, the thing I think that makes the novel most interesting and sort of ele- – not elevates it, but but distinguishes it from every other type of, of, of art is that the novel gives you an opportunity to watch somebody else's mind work, right? You think about um, – you think about a song, right? And a song is beautiful. It can it can move you. It can touch you. It's it's it can it can make you feel things that you've never felt before, right? And watching somebody, pl- you know, in, in, as a performer, watching somebody perform something, whether it be an acting or watching a dancer, again, like these are things that can can have these intense emotional reactions, and and even moments of of empathy. But it's empathy through through seeing something. But w- when you're reading a book. Like a really good book, the books I sort of like the most, a lot of them are about taking you through the steps that somebody's mind takes to reach a conclusion. And I think that's a really important thing because it's it's a way for a person to look at another person who they may have nothing in common with and say, well, that's a person like me. You know, like they might have... They might have different numbers, but they're using the same math that I am. They're using the same algebraic equations. They're just putting in different integers for variables. And I think that that's like an incredibly important thing because that's a tool for empathy. It is a way for people to not hate each other. And I mean, again, they're always for people to not hate each other, but like... The novel among uh, the novel for me is a way to show how the person who you you know you can't see into their head you can never really see into another person's head, but it's a way to to sort of say oh the inside of their head is like the inside of my head. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like 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 uh, you know one of the things that you and I have talked about before briefly is is I like Michael Bay, and, <laughs> right? I do, and one of the reasons I like Michael Bay is I like watching robots punch each other. <laughs> you know? Like, I like the sort of... 
I, I like I like the cutting. I like the rhythm. I like the sort of fact that I'm looking at something that I in a nev- never in a million years could imagine. I never in a million years would take the time to create um, or or render. Right? Like I couldn't picture it and I couldn't do it. Um, and it's 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 so fun for me to watch it because I've I've never seen it. But that is again that's like a sensory experience. That's exciting for me. It excites me. It it, it hits the lizard eleven year old part of my brain. <laughs> But when I'm reading um, Austin, yeah. when I'm reading Roth, when right. I'm reading, uh, uh, um, you know, again, B- Richard Ford is a person who was one of the. F- Have you ever read any Ford? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a guy that for me was um, foundational for that kind of thing. And it's a funny thing because I read Independence Day uh, in 1996 uh, after it won the Pulitzer Prize. But the reason that I read it is because. There was a story. It, the, book, the book is called Independence Day. And in 1996, the biggest movie of the year was Independence Day. And this is 100% true. People were buying the, the Richard Ford book because they thought it was a novelization of the Roland Emmerich movie. And they were furious that that's not what it was. So you had people who were returning books that was a Pulitzer Prize winning work of art because it wasn't a novelization of, of aliens coming out and attacking and Will Smith punching them, which I thought was just fabulous. So I was like, I got to read this book. I think that's great. I think that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. I got to read this book. But um, yeah, it was this. So it's sort of like the combination, right, of, of, of you know, you got to go through Michael Bay or Roland Emmerich sometimes to get to the Richard Ford. Well, that that gets at something that I was going to ask you is, mm-hmm. or, OK, so your book, in some ways, it's well, OK, when when you say that, I, I kind of see where you're coming from. Um, the Miners, in a lot of ways, is a about family relationships, but also relationships between people, and you've got these kind of like the 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 protagonist is this kind of laconic dude. Sometimes you kind of hate him. I but, hope so. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think you did that on purpose, but in a lot of ways, you do also get behind him because. Well, there's some shifts there. There are some things that he begins to see. There are some things he can't see. Yeah. And there's some blind spots. But it's about these in, these interpersonal interactions mm-hmm. and these things that are you know often very class based. Mm, yeah. Like, oh yeah. What, what are there's what are the things that even though we live in the same town block us from from kind of interacting with each other yeah well and 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 how do we how do we take each other for granted you know what i mean like i grew up in a place i grew up in swarthmore which is a wonderful town full of wonderful people um who constantly had students or um people from you know outside of the town you know whether it be just out of town or whatever coming into their homes you know, they were yeah. constantly doing construction or they were tutors or they were au pairs or they were, um, you know, doing they were they were working outside, um, building things, whatever. And and it's sort of so fascinating because they didn't like it's not like it, it's not like what you see in the movies where it's like, you know, these they, they would they would they would go up to somebody and be like, now I want you to, you know, like speaking to them like they're idiots. They would actually be very like these these rich people would be they would be very comfortable and confident around these these other people and and you don't know who they are and i don't mean yeah. that in a i don't mean that in a sort of alarmist reactionary way i just mean you don't know who these people are and um like as human beings yeah 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 like, we just don't know like what is this person's life? Yeah, what are right. Their beliefs. Yeah. How do they think about things? What are their you know? Who are they as human beings? Yeah. What are their I, values? I, I think that's what you're what, what you're getting at is that that's what I that's what I took away from your from yeah. your book oh, is good. that there's the the sort of internalization. Mm-hmm. There's the the inner life that each of us has, and there are these things that sort of block us off from. From acknowledging that, or or even being able to interpret that, yeah. Like, okay, the 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 sort of crux of the novel is that there's this guy who 
um, he's doing basically contracting work mm-hmm. on the house of this rich family that's sort of, you know, packing up and getting ready to move. Yeah. And he gets sort of closer and closer to the family. Yeah. And becomes kind of like a de facto member of the family. Like, yeah. Like kind of a mentor. To let me just step the, in and yeah, yeah. say that basically the, the story of the of the book is that there's this family and the father says one day at dinner, he says, good news, I got a promotion at my job. Uh, bad news, we're moving. I have to I have to leave at the end of the week. I'm going to Chicago. And um, you kids, there's a there's a daughter and a son, a girl and a boy. You're going to stay behind, finish out the school year. Your mom's going to get the house ready for sale. And then you're going to come join me in Chicago. So the story takes place mostly in that interim. And it's about the vacuum that this guy leaves when he when he leaves the situation and the contractor sort of gets sucked into that. He becomes a yeah. sort of a surrogate father, surrogate husband, sort of yeah. older brother figure. And he is a person who is uh, not up to the task. Right. But he's also he's not a he's not unwilling. Like he is a person who wants to try to do this. He just can't. Right. And yeah. it's that's the thing is that we each have our own inner life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We each have our own circumstances that we're coming at this from. And we make all kinds of interpretations based on our own situation, mm-hmm. based on our own background, based on our own circumstances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do we negotiate those? Exactly. And, and sort of like, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, sort of high culture versus low culture. And um, – there was a moment in a in a in a documentary that I saw once about the making of Jaws that stuck with me forever, much like the Independence Day thing, um, where Spielberg was talking about he realized that what made Jaws scary, the movie, was he had to put the camera in the water. He said, um, if I put the camera even an inch above the water, the audience wasn't scared. The audience was watching a shark chase somebody else. But if you put the camera in the water, then the audience is in the water with the shark. Mm-hmm. And, and what I sort of like to do with with my books and my stories is to try to put the audience in the water. So, like, what is Sam's problem? Even if it's like in the first part of the story, I, um, you know, I, I, I cut my hair without telling my mom and now she's mad at me when you're 16 and you have no, you know, that's a shark, man. That's a thing that's terrifying to you, right? Because your world yeah. is your house. Your world is your parents. Your world is your friends. Mm-hmm. And and that is a thing that is terrifying, that I have, that I have made this leap, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. Right. And it's like right. really, it's really easy if you're outside of the water to say, well, that's not scary. Who cares? It's just hair. It'll grow back. <laughs> But but when we're 16, that's not how it is, because because, you know, our shark is a different shark. My shark as a 39 year old man is probably the same shark, some of the same sharks as, as your sharks, you know, taking care of our kids, putting food on the table, you know, um, making, you know, being being enough of adults that our wives don't leave us. You know, like <laughs> these are things that matter way more than hair. But like a 16 year old girl has no knowledge of that. This is just the scariest yeah. thing that's happened to her, which is different than the scariest thing. For a 28-year-old man, which in the first story, the, the first part of the story is, I might be a dad. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, this girl that I'm dating uh, might be pregnant, and how am I going to handle that? And like, but but the point is, is that they're both scared. You know, yeah. the point is not that, that Nick's fear is more real or more uh, uh, legitimate than Sam's fear. The point is they're both frightened. Right. And and they both are able to navigate it or not navigate it. But in the first part of the story, they navigate it. You know, they don't know. Again, spoiler. Nobody dies in the first 50 pages of my book. <laughs> um, but like, you know, but there, there's something that's scary that's put in front of them that they need to overcome. And the scariness is relative to to their lives, to what's scary yeah. to them, which, again, brings us back to empathy. You know, Nick's fear is different from Sam's fear, but they're both fear. You know, yeah. like their 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 glands work the same way. They both sweat. You know, cold sweat. They both <laughs> they both are frightened, um, and and that's hopefully like the reader goes. Well, I I too am frightened. Um, All right. You know, or know what it's like to be frightened. I guess. Well, okay. So that brings us back to sort sort of what we were talking about before mm-hmm. the 
the work in its own context, the work in the historical context, and the work today. Right. Did you – okay, just personally, did you get any of that, not necessarily fear, but mm-hmm. empathy from Don Quixote? Oh, big time. Big time. I mean, I think what's really interesting about Don Quixote, for me, mm-hmm. a couple of things. But the thing that I thought was really interesting is that it is it is ultimately a story about – people's relationships with stories, right? Like you have in Don Quixote, a man who is deluded or crazy or willfully something, but he is inspired by the nonsense that he reads to go out and have adventures. And that's really what the first half of the story is about. Um, But the second half of the story, which in some ways I, I liked more, is about people's reaction to reading his story. Yeah. You know, he has now become the thing that he wants to be, although not the same. He's a comic version of it. Right. But like he's talking about the great deeds of I, I'm sorry, I don't remember their names, but, you know, this, <laughs> nobody this, does. Okay, don't good. worry about it. So, you know, but the great deeds of Sir Whoever and and, and whatever and Don Don that guy. But now he's somebody. And so the story is sort of the interesting thing about the, the story to me is how all of these different people react yeah to these stories don quixote reads these ridiculous stories and thinks i'm gonna go out and be a great person i want to be great you know and it's foolish Uh and it's ridiculous but it's sweet you know he wants to make the world a better place and then in the second half of the book he runs into a bunch of assholes (laughs) who are like who read the story and go look at this idiot let's have some fun with him you know, like it's it's sort of the, the difference between punch what we what we call punching up and punching down, right? Yeah. That like it's a story about how again, like sometimes stories can bring out the best or the worst in us. And you mm-hmm. see both of them in that, you know? Yeah, I, that's that's what was striking to me is that you you responded more to the second part than the first part. And okay, I I'm going to get into this with Daniel more, mm-hmm. but that's kind. Of, that's kind of the crit- critical cliche, but it's got some some weight to it. I mean, mm-hmm. there there really is something to it. Uh, the first book is the Renaissance book, and then the second book is the Baroque book. Okay, and and what that means sort of is the first book in some ways is the more humanist and mm-hmm. the more positive right. and the more sort of recycling stories and having fun with it. Yeah. And the second book is much darker yeah. and much more introspective yeah. and much more, I guess, self-enfolded in this weird kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is asking too much, but why did you respond more to the second book? Is it that kind of darkening or thoughtfulness about the situation of the first book that or or that reflection that sort of struck me struck well, you I think actually it's interesting because um I think it's because I I understood it better like okay. you and I were talking earlier about uh about about context and about yeah. when you're reading a story you know that that stories aren't written for history they're written for the present and then when we look back on them you know they're very interesting because we have it, it's it's helpful to understand the world that that the story was written in, and one of the things about the first one, the first book, and I didn't even know it was two books when I started it. I just thought mm-hmm. it was you know Don Quixote. I didn't know there were two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, was so one of the things that I was really interested in when I started it was was what is this about, right? What is this thing that I'm reading? And so I was right. reading this like it was comic, it was funny, like I really enjoyed uh, you know Sancho. Not just not just getting beaten up, but being really sore, like literally hurting. And that a lot of the story isn't just about the story. You know, the first part of the story isn't just about the sort of the comic fallacy of trying to do these things, but about the sort of the cost of it. (laughs) It's like your teeth get knocked out. Like that's okay. I, Terry Gilliam has been trying to make this movie again and again yeah, and again. Ironically, and I feel like it needs to be a joint project between Terry Gilliam and Werner Herzog. <laughs> that Gilliam needs to be the one to direct all of the most mundane 
parts mm. of the book. But all of the delusions need to be directed by, by Herzog. I would give you one better. I think the first part should be directed by, like, Lord and Miller. You know, like, guys <laughs> guys who are, like, you know, the guys who made the Lego movie, right? Like, guys who are really up with people and are, like, writing, you know, about these sort of good-hearted dopes that are well, sort of going into the world and having adventures. But it's sort of like, okay, all of the delusion, mm-hmm. like, okay, the the parts where Don Quixote is expounding on, um, you know, this, that, and the other, and living in a real world that is extraordinarily banal and mundane, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that needs to be Gilliam. Okay, and then the see parts yeah. where he's getting the stuffing knocked out of him, and his teeth are flying everywhere, and there's yeah. blood all over the place, that needs to be Herzog. I guess, but I, let be- me say this. I don't think Gilliam <laughs> likes people. Like, I don't want to get into a whole <laughs> Terry Gilliam thing, but I mean, like, you look at his movies, and I don't think he really likes people very much. And And getting back no. to what you were saying about the romantic book, I think that I think that Cervantes, especially in that first book, he really likes a lot of the people like, yeah. you know, involved like he thinks they're dopey. He thinks they're they're silly. But I think a lot of them he thinks are uh, decent, you know, yeah. and good. He really does. He and really I don't does. I don't think Gilliam feels that way about no, people in I, general. I, I, I yeah, I, I would would kind of agree with you on that. Yeah. But the second book. He doesn't – he's not necessarily misanthropic, but there is this kind of knowingness yeah. that I think he's, is is, is He's disappointed. He's, and that's – again, that's sort of what I meant when I said I understood it better. Mm-hmm. You know, because the first one is, is not just a book about – it's not just those things that we talked about. And those things are delightful. It's also like – and I wrote you this, right? I said like yeah. – I said like wh- – why does Spain only have like nine people in it? You know, because like he 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 runs into like you know this guy who tells this story about how he you know had three brothers and like you know he he met this woman when he was in you know when he was somewhere in the Middle East and he escaped and he has this woman he's trying to find his brothers and then one of the brothers just shows up. You know, and then there another brother shows up and I was saying to you, I was saying, like, I don't quite understand. Am I supposed to think that this is. Am I laughing that this is happening? Is this just some early like, you know, is this is this just before literature got around to trying to be realistic about its presentation of the world in in, in terms of like probability? Like what is happening here? And well, it. Okay, that's in the first part, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what the, I was saying yeah. is that yeah, I just found that you'd ask me which part. You know, I like the second part more more because I was able to understand the disappointment in people much more easily than I was able to understand the sort of narrative games of the first one, where I was oh, like, okay. I was like, why is this happening? Like, so the narrative games are are sort of part of that Renaissance tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's kind of this critical. Up until the 20th century, I believe, mm-hmm. there was this critical tradition of reading Cervantes as a kind of naive writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that fit into the view, okay, I, I, I'm I, not Spanish. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Um, I, I don't I'm know. I don't know Spain. what Goozer is. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's Spanish or I'd like Russian. My, I don't know. Ask my father. Mm-hmm. Um He's the one who made up the term. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm not self-invented. I suppose my father was, but uh, the uh, according to as much as I've read, mm-hmm. the the critical consensus is sort of like there was this romanticized view of Spain that mm-hmm. needed Cervantes to be naive. Okay, that needed him to be sort of. Unread, mm-hmm. and there were lots of writers in Golden Age Spain that were coming from a lot of different sort of backgrounds and traditions. Mm-hmm. A lot of them very intellectual and intellectualized. Oh, I see okay. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And the reality is that Cervantes spent a lot of his formative years in Italy. 
Okay. He knew he he knew Italian or sort of functional Italian. He knew how to read and he read the Italian texts. Mm. So he read something like Boccaccio, which is a bunch of short stories, but all linked together according to an overarching narrative. And you get variations and permutations within Boccaccio, kind of like a fugue. Okay. You know? It's sort of like, okay, here's a story, here's a counter story right. that works in similar along similar lines, and here's a counter counter story right. yeah. that works according to that. So what he does in the first book of Don Quixote is very much in that Italian Renaissance vein. Oh, that's fascinating. That here's story, counter story. Here's the my shift on reality. Yeah. Here's my meta narratorial shift on the unreality of narration. Right. And here's this, here's that. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think the difference is in Cervantes, it's all kind of provisional. Mm-hmm. Like he's the the critical consensus is that he's not exactly making it up as he goes along. Mm-hmm. But it's partially overarching narrative, partially, hey, let's see just what happens in this chapter. Yeah, because I think, I mean, it's interesting that you said that to me, that the sort of naive, uh, naivete, or that he wasn't like that intellectual writer to me, because knowing nothing about, you know, Spain at the time, so much of the book, the first part especially, is so clearly a critique of storytelling, and yeah. the value of storytelling and the drawbacks of storytelling. It, it, it almost reminds me in that respect of, and I'm, I'm going back to movies again, but of somebody like Tarantino, that this yeah. is a person who is extremely well versed. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to, you don't have to know everything Tarantino is referencing to see that he's referencing things and right. that he has a sort of a, that he's talking to all these other things that matter to him. And, and I sort of feel the same way about Cervantes. It's like, it's like, there's just, there's like literal pages of the book where they're just going through people's libraries, talking about books and mm-hmm. sort of going, you know, Oh, this is a good one. This is shit. You know, this is interesting. I like that, that you don't need. And like, and then you as the, as the reader are going, well, just, okay. Just because the characters are saying that, like, what does Cervantes think of it? Because the person who has said that in the case of say, Don Quixote is a madman, you know, and, and, or, or some of the people who, some of the other people are people who maybe are, um, you know, you're like, well, that guy, that guy seems like to have his good head on his shoulders, but he's pretty mean to Don Quixote, and I don't like right. that he's mean to exactly. Don Quixote. So, what does his opinion mean? You know, of this work. That's the thing is that the the second book is is occasioned by the fact that somebody wrote a bad sequel. Yeah, no, I thought that was amazing. That was so weird to me. And again, like I, I think I told you. Um, I know I keep I keep coming back to high, you know, high and low art, but that is that is what I think is really interesting. Is it reminded me. Of like the Arrested Development, where um, do you remember the one in the second season? I think where they're doing the 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 where um, Carl Weathers is directing uh, a, an episode of some true crime TV show oh, yeah, uh, yeah, about yeah, yeah. the blues, and, and Ron Howard is the narrator. Keeps right. taking time to dump on. Um, on, on the narration of the other right. version, and I think I mean I think that's really interesting again because. We think I know I for a long time. I think it's it's just sort of like this um, this default position to think of high art and low art as being separate things, um, and of sort of great works of art as being these things that are in the past, and that they involve things that we don't do or that or that we wouldn't understand. You know what I mean? But this idea is it's like no, no. The games that Cervantes is playing are playing are the same games that. Quentin Tarantino is playing or that, um, you know, that Arrested Development is playing or that Kanye West is playing, you know, by that these are the same games. They're just part of what makes something high versus low is a how long it's lasted mm-hmm. and B who's doing it. Right? right. Is it's like it's like if it's because this is the canon, right? Like that's what we're talking about. If it's mm-hmm. if it's stuffy white guys in the past doing it, it's high art. But if it's sort of, um, you know, if it's if it's music for um, if it's pop music, 
you know, which traditionally is is music for uh, uh, the hoi polloi, you know, that's low art, which I don't think is necessarily a, a, an, an, an I don't think that's necessarily a bad distinction so much as I think that the value they're, they're still playing with the same toys and they're still using the same ideas mm-hmm. um, and that these are things that are that are that are still alive. And they're ways of getting, again, getting back to empathy, they're ways of sort of looking back and saying, we have always been asking these questions that we're asking. It is all about our relationships with the things that teach us, mm-hmm. right? That it sort of is about, um, when you think about like what Kanye does, right? Is he's playing, you know, he mixes in all that old soul music, or at least what he used to do back when he was, you know, what we think of as sort of traditional Kanye stuff is he was he was he's playing the music that he grew up with, but putting a contemporary spin on it. He's he's rapping over it. He's speeding it up. He's slowing it down. He's fucking with the voices. He's using production. But it's that it's that same sort of idea as he's saying, you know, this is the stuff that is going to propel me and is going to drive me and, and, and took me. And made me want to join in on this conversation is kind of similar to what Cervantes is doing. And he's sort of, you know, Cervantes, a lot of what he says is is antagonistic, but it also is about the way that stuff inspires people. Because mm-hmm. like because like Don Quixote, is, he's, a, he's a fool, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't in some ways make the world a better place. That doesn't mean that right. he doesn't improve the, improve the lives of people around him, you right. know, like. <laughs> It doesn't matter that he's an idiot. It doesn't matter that he's crazy. You know? In some ways, the the craziness makes it better. I agree. Yeah, completely. And you and I talked about, like, is he, how crazy is he? What is his madness? Is, is, it's really fascinating. I was thinking while you were talking earlier Mm. that one, and I, I love, obviously, I think, I love movies and I love television. But one of the things that it might have done that's kind of sad is, 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 is it's made us had to literalize things. Yeah. In a way, you know, because it is, it's like, it's like, it's, 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 I was saying earlier, right. That the difference, you know, it's one thing to write dinosaur when you're Michael Crichton. It's, it's another thing to make a dinosaur when you're Steven Spielberg is it's like when we can see something, all of a sudden it's sillier looking, you know? And it's like, we need to make things more possible. Because we're so used to looking at them and visualizing them. And that mm-hmm. makes them more real. And and the trick of something like Don Quixote isn't just the fantasy stuff. It's not. Like I was pretty I was pretty e- I could I could very easily accept that this person was sort of hallucinating that there were giants. I had a lot more trouble with this sort of idea that it's like, as we say, why does he keep running into all these people that know each other? Right. Um, but it's like the ultimate thing is because who cares? Like, that's what, the, that's what the story dictates, you know, but like, but we're so sort of used to um, seeing things. It just it just makes it real. It's like the same way. Again, the same way people like complain about the new Star Wars movie that like, um, oh, it's unrealistic that one spaceship could outrun the other one. As if anything in that movie is really realistic, <laughs> you know what I mean? As if like, as if as if the notion of of air of, of airplanes flying through space and dogfighting is right. like is like cool, but this other thing is not. Anyway, I just I, I think that that's an interesting thing to think about. That sort yeah. of looking at things, like literally looking at things, sometimes makes it harder to to we lose something from that. I don't know. Maybe that's nothing, but it's interesting to me. I, I, I think that gets at what the novel does, and yeah. I think that gets at what this novel does. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think you're right that perspective and and dialogue between all these different viewpoints and empathy yeah. is really what we tend to value in this. Yeah. You know? What these stories bring out in the people around them. You know? Yeah. Whether it's Don Quixote, whether it's something contemporary, whether it's your novel, whether yeah. it's whatever, yeah. right? This is what these stories do. So, yeah, okay. So Daniel and I are probably going to launch into all kinds of obscure information about Golden Age Spain. But um, 
what does this mean now? And I think that's the the question you keep asking and the question you keep answering is mm-hmm. to read it and take away from it. And I'm really kind of glad that you dug it, man. Yeah, I, well, thank you know. I'm glad that I read it. You didn't, a- you didn't ask me to read it, but you brought it up. And, like, yeah. I don't know if I would have if you if you hadn't. There are so, I mean, I remember 20 years ago buying buying books and being, like, looking at them on, them sh- on my shelf and feeling like, I may die before I read this book. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, not like, like, it's just, it's just, there's, there's so much more to do than there, than there is time to do it. So, like, I may never have gotten around to it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> But it seemed to move at a clip. Well, um, yeah. thanks for coming on, man. Well, and, thanks for having uh, me. I, I really appreciate your perspective. And uh, everybody, please go out and buy this novel. It's it's a good one. Yeah, I like it too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care, man. Cool. See ya. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.